So today we're kind of at a bridge week. We just finished up our series last week on being missional, and this Wednesday, believe it or not, Lent starts. So next week we'll be kind of diving into our Lent series. So today, it's kind of this bridge, looking kind of backwards, reflecting on that, and looking forward to Lent. We're going to do that by looking at Jesus' last miracle. The last miracle he performed before he died. We'll get into another one. We just let it out there, but we'll get to talking more about it. But before we get to the scripture itself, I want to kind of set the stage for where things are. So this, this scene takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus is arrested. Thus far on this night has been the night of the Last Supper, right? We're all the disciples, we're together, they have their last meal together. Jesus, this is where Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper, gives us communion. You know, the, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you. That's just happened. Jesus, after the meal breaks, they go off into the garden to pray. Now Jesus takes a couple of other disciples, goes off a little ways further, and tells them all, hey, can you, can you pray with me? I need your support, I need, but I need to go over here and talk directly to God and be alone. And what happens? Remember, the disciples fall asleep, right? But so, and this is when Jesus goes out and he's pouring his heart out to God. This is the, you know, Father, if it is possible, take this cup for me. So this is, you know, an extremely emotional moment for Jesus. Comes back, finds all the disciples sleeping. I don't want to say yells at them, but has a discussion about like, hey, you, you, you couldn't even stay awake for one hour with me? I kind of told you, I'm gonna die soon. One day, one hour, really? So that's going on when we get this. So, wow. He was speaking to them while he was speaking, while he was having this discussion with them about sleeping. A crowd came up, and the man, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So, this crowd approaches. The other Gospels kind of fill in some gaps here. They talk about this crowd coming armed. They have clubs. They're being if pitchforks would have been a thing, they would have had pitchforks at this time. One of the other Gospels talks about Roman soldiers with this group. So this isn't just a small group, this is a good-sized group coming, looking for a fight. Soldiers and armed people, armed citizens, are part of this group. And Judas is at the lead. Judas, one of the twelve. Earlier tonight, Judas was present at the Last Supper, was present for you know, all those proceedings, and then, seemingly unbeknownst to everyone else there, Jesus calls him out directly and says, I know what you're doing tonight. Let's just go and get it over. So Judas sneaks out. Here's where he makes his reappearance. Now, notice how Judas tries to call out Jesus, or tries to mark Jesus as the person to be arrested. He's obviously talked with this group and said, the person I kiss is the one you're going to arrest. Now, what is this idea of why kissing? It, this kind of gets the idea of, you know, we talk about the holy kiss. Despite what many swarmy middle school, high school boys would try to tell you, it is not this. Do not be John Travolta. Don't be creepy. That's not where this idea comes from. This was a very common greeting 
the Old Testament goes on, or the New Testament, excuse me, goes on to talk about it a lot. Paul talks about, you know, greeting each other with a holy kiss. That's a very common thing. And it even goes back a little further to the Greek and Roman times and a little further back. But it comes down to the idea of being genuinely excited to see someone. Being genuinely uplifted and joyous when you saw someone. It comes from this place of fellowship, this place of love. And that was the kind of simple acceptance of like, we're part of this larger family. And so this kiss is representing genuineness, representing authentically being excited to see someone. Judas is trying to take this symbol of authenticity, this symbol of genuine excitement, fellowship, and love, and completely corrupt it. Taking something that is meant to be a perfect greeting, a perfect, genuine emotion, and completely turning it on its head. Turning it into something it's absolutely not. And what I find fascinating about this version of the story, he doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't let him do it. In, the, in this version, Judas doesn't kiss him. He says he's about to Jesus to kiss him, what Jesus asked him. In this version, Judas doesn't do it. Jesus stops him before he does. He says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus calls him out on this greeting of love, this greeting of genuine fellowship, you're ruining. And Jesus isn't going to let that pass. Jesus is going to make sure that is known. Moving on. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Now, at first, this might seem like a weird jump in logic to, let's just start fighting. But there is a little bit of a reason for this. It's not a great logic, but would you later you kind of understand it a little bit. Earlier in the evening, during the Last Supper, Jesus actually has a conversation about swords. You jump back, I'm not going to read it here, but you can see it here. He's talking about swords, amongst other things. You know, swords, he goes on about clothing, food, all of that, as symbols for being prepared. So in the larger context this, of this text, the swords are not actually about fighting. The swords are, the swords are allegories for preparation, for being ready for what is coming. But the disciples don't get that, because the response during this conversation is, oh hey, we got two swords right here, we're good to go. Nope, nope, that, that's not what, what is going on, that's not what Jesus is trying to get at here. And Jesus' reaction is interesting. What is even more interesting, is how this reaction comes off in different translations. These are four different translations of Jesus' response to them. So he replied, enough of that. That seems to be indicating enough of you're missing the point, I'm frustrated, let's just move on. Number two, it's enough. Is that referring to we have two swords? It's enough. Or is it, we have two swords, no, no, it's enough, you missed the point. Moving on, number three, that's enough. That's another ambiguous one, right? Is he talking about, yeah, two swords, that's enough. Or is it, that's enough. What is it? Again, number four, just enough. That one's more leading into the frustrated, you're, you're missing a category. 
for me, I tend to go with the kind of number one when looking at the syntax if, without going completely down the nerd rabbit hole, the syntax of the Greek and everything else going on in this passage. I would tend to forward to that first one, the enough of that, the enough not referring to, yeah, two swords, that's plenty, but the enough, you've missed the point. We'll come back to this as we'll see coming back to it here. So, they have swords on their mind. A misunderstanding what Jesus was talking about earlier in the swords, but they have in their head, oh, Jesus talking about swords. Oh, this must be that's this must be what Jesus was talking about. So we jump through. One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Now, one of them, who do you think this was? You had to guess out of the twelve. It's Peter. <laughs> who else would it be? Uh, some of the other gospels call out is Peter, but of course it's Peter, the one who just kind of jumps in and does everything. And what I think is kind of funny about this is Peter doesn't wait to get the answer to the question. Because right before, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Peter's like, I'm not waiting for the answer. It's slicing time. He goes immediately in. And now look at who he attacks. The servant of the high priest. Now, who, first of all, who is this servant? Who is this person? Well, this person is not so much a servant we might think of today. The servant of the high priest was an important position. This was basically the emissary of the high priest. This was the figurehead of the high priest. When speeches, when things were happening in public, a lot of times it would have been this person that did it. So this is a very important position. This wasn't a random person that Peter attacked. This person represented everything Peter hated about the high priest, about the corrupt priesthood at the time. This person was the symbol, the face of all of that. I was trying to think of a better example, but I couldn't because we've been watching Lord of the Rings lately, and so the best example I could think of was this guy, the Mouth of Sauron. If you've read the books, he is this giant jerk of a person, because you never really see Sauron, you know, nerd stuff, but this becomes the face, the voice that the people see, hear, talking to them. If you want a less creepy example, there is another good example of this. The true hero of Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee. Remember, Sam is Frodo's servant. Sam works for Frodo. Frodo is Sam's master. So like, that relationship here, you can think of it as, Peter just cut Sam's ear off in a way. Right? How would people respond to that? So, how do you look at it? Mount the Sauron, Sam, whichever one you want to look at here. Peter's attacked a very important person. And Peter 100% knew who this person was. Any interaction they would have had with Caiaphas, the high priest, this person would have been standing right next to him. Peter knew who this was. Now, Think about the ramifications of what's just happened. Peter has just attacked the personal attendant, personal servant, in the stereo, the single most important religious figure in the city, if not the entire region. Peter has just proven the chief's priests and religious elders fears true. The fear mongering they've been pulling up for years now. That group is just trying to overthrow the government. They're trying to seize power. 
Peter seemingly has just proven that right, or that's how it's going to be spun. They've laid their cards on the table now. They're trying to overthrow things. So they're probably all going to get arrested, if not killed instantly. Because remember, they only got two swords. So those that aren't killed in the garden here are going to be arrested. And now these charges, they're not going to be religious charges that Jesus would have faced, based in his story. These aren't claims of being the Messiah anymore. These are not political charges. They are now charged with trying to violently overthrow the Rome-appointed religious institution. Thus, overthrow the Roman government. So those that survive the garden suddenly don't go to the Sanhedrin to have their trial. They go directly to Rome. They go to the Roman government. And I cannot see any way they're not killed for trying to overthrow the government through a violent uprising. That's, that's how it's going to be presented. That's a story that's going to be told. So, and I love time travel movies and that stuff, so this is how I visually decided to represent it. So we have kind of the God's, God's plan. What we have in our Bibles right now, as things played out, Peter, with one swing of his sword, has completely changed everything. Peter has started a new line now. It basically has undone everything that's happened before. Because now, there's zero chance of Christianity continuing. They're all going to be killed. They're going to simply die as one of hundreds of groups that tried to overthrow Rome. We're not going to know their names. Peter's messed up really bad here. But luckily, Jesus isn't going to let this happen. Jesus answered, no more of this. He touched the man's ear, and he healed him. Jesus fixes things. Here doesn't happen. This worst timeline doesn't happen. We're back on God's plan. Now, one thing that's always fascinating me about this story is just the logistics of everything. Who saw what happened? Right? Was it his chaos thing? Peter falls off, Jesus quickly heals it. Do the other people around kind of see this has happened? Or is everything happening so much that it's really Peter and the servant are the only ones that notice it? I don't, I was not saying, but to me that's something I always think about it as how, how did this play out? Regardless, I think we can assume the servant knows what happened, right? If your ear gets cut off, you're going to feel it and know it. So after this, Jesus was arrested, taken to the house of Caiaphas. That's where Jesus' trial happens, at Caiaphas' house, the high priest's house. Meaning this servant's there. There is every chance, and a very good chance, that the servant was running these proceedings. Would have been the MC, for lack of a better word, bringing witnesses in, taking them out. So how does that change for him? Again, it doesn't say, but just think about that. How does that impact this person, knowing the person that we're going to kill today fixed my ear, did this miraculous sign, and stopped this violence? I think it's an interesting kind of dynamic to think about that, you know, we have no idea, but just emotionally, that is a big 
I don't know, conundrum for me to think about the most kind of things in my life. All right, what, what does this mean? What are the takeaways from this? What does it mean that Jesus' last miracle before he died, his last healing, his last miraculous sign, was fixing Peter's giant mistake? Because I think we can agree, lasts are important, right? Think about last you've had in your lives, the last time you've spoken to someone, the last time you've been on vacation, the last time you've eaten at a restaurant or something. And how much more are these last magnified when you know they're last while they're happening? When you know, hey, this is the last time I'm going to see this person. This is the last time I'm going to be here. They're special. They sit with us. So what does it mean that Jesus knew and chose to have his last miracle be this, fixing Peter's sin. Well, I think it really highlights Jesus' forgiveness. It highlights Jesus' willingness and understanding that we're not perfect, but don't worry, I'm with you. You made a huge mistake. It's a reminder that we're not expected to be perfect. Because, I mean, the person that Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, almost ruined the church before it could even get started. Right? Now, I know we've touched on this topic last couple weeks, and I don't mean for us to always be thinking about, like, oh, we're terrible, we're the worst, we, we can't do anything right. That's not kind of what I must be thinking about. Because humans can do amazing things, right? We can do wonderful things. But we're not expected to be perfect all the time. I think that's a big deal. And also, reminding ourselves that we're not expected to can really throw off a little bit of pride from us, right? Because how often do we think, well, if I work hard enough, or I put in so many hours, or if I'm innovative enough, I can solve this problem. I can do this, I can do whatever. When it's really God that's gonna do it. If, it's, if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. Regardless of what we do, we can partner in instruments in helping things happen, but it's not gonna be through our own strength. For me, that's an amazing thing that gets highlighted in this, in Jesus' last miracle. The pride pulling out of the fact that we are not required. We cannot do everything. We can't really do anything outside of God, right? So that really just helps us remind ourselves, this isn't me, this is God. And the last thing that I love about this Jesus' last miracle, being fixing Peter's is it highlights the divine grace Forgiveness and love, all of that that Jesus extends to us. But it highlights that it's extended to us all the time. No matter what we're doing, no matter what we've done. St. Peter, for example, when Peter is at his absolute highest moment, which I would probably argue is his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Right? Day of Pentecost, after Jesus has been ascended to heaven. 40 days later, Spirit of God comes down, fills the people, speaking in tongues, all of that. Peter goes out, 
gives a ridiculously good sermon, and hundreds of people turn toward Jesus. Like, that's a massive high. Jesus does not love, show grace, show partiality, anything more toward Peter on that day than on Peter's probably worst day, which is combining this with denying Jesus, cutting off a guy's ear, denying Jesus, all on the same day. He loves grace. Put in whatever you want there that Jesus is showing Peter is the same on his high as on his low. In all things, at all times. Jesus' grace, Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' love is the same for us. And to me, that is incredibly free. We can't earn this love. It's just freely given. We can't think we are so bad that, well, we can't, there's no way, like, I've messed up so bad that God can't forgive this. But I can't. It's God's grace love, forgiveness, and mercy. It's the same for us when we're at our best, when we're at our worst. So to me, that's what I love about Jesus' last How it highlights all of that. Now, as we transition a little bit forward, looking ahead to Lent, oh, I thought I took that out. We are going to, our series is going to be Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. On the cross, Jesus says seven phrases. And so for the seven weeks of Lent, we're going to go through and touch every one of them. And one thing I love about these seven phrases is they highlight a very different aspect of each one of them of Jesus. They highlight something amazing in Jesus' heart. First of all, we've got to give a little preview for it. It's going to be forgiveness. Laura's going to talk about how does forgiveness play? They've got to expand upon that idea more next week. She talks about Jesus' first thing on the cross. So I'm really excited to really dive into each and every one of these because they really exemplify something amazing about Jesus. Each and every one of these. 